Hello, hello, good morning, Theo class. Find a seat, settle in, warm yourself up. Great to see you. Dr. Payne is traveling, giving a lecture or teaching at Fuller Seminary in Southern California. She says hello to you. Hello. We'll convey that to her. Dr. Campbell, how was your weekend? My weekend was good. I got the hot mic again. I yep. love it. Hot mic. Hot mic. Yeah, my weekend was good. I preached at my church. Um, it was good. There were a few people that showed up to that uh, from Fox, which was always nice. And then oh. we, we ate food afterwards. So, How do you prepare for a sermon? Do you just kind of wing it, or how does that go? Um, so we preach through the lectionary, which mm. is uh, kind of this tool that's used throughout a bunch of different church denominations that kind of assigns four scripture readings for each Sunday. And so we kind of have a preset like list of what we're going to be preaching through uh, for the next six months. And so I pick up that passage kind of early in the week, and then uh, I just kind of read through it and pray through it. Then I start consulting maybe some um, some commentaries or some books of uh, New Testament or Old Testament scholarship on that passage. And then I start thinking about well, what does this uh, passage have to say to my particular congregation today? Usually on Friday or Saturday, I get down to actually writing stuff out and kind of it comes together uh, just before Sunday evening. Yeah, well, that sounds great. Yeah. We are adding more words to the creed this week. In fact, we're adding the most words that we'll have, we'll be adding ever at one time. I even have the creed up here to help me remember them. The words we are adding are, crucially, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay, we're going to focus on that first phrase, but again, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. After this week, though, all of the future phrases are just one little line, like the communion of saints, the life everlasting, really short things like that. So fear not, this is our last hurdle to overcome. We can do it together. We will do it. It's happening, okay? Sounds good. Yeah. Um, we wanted to remind them something about section. We're yes. back in section this week. So, yeah, you're back in regular section. You're here Monday, section on Wednesday, back here on Friday. Um, but a reminder, you're going to start talking about the first three chapters of that book, Simply Jesus, that you have all gotten. So, if you kind of have been taking it easy on the reading, you have a couple days to get caught up on that reading, and you've still had scripture passages assigned over the past couple weeks as well. So get caught up on that scripture reading and the first few chapters of Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright. I love that euphemism, taking it easy on the reading. That's yeah, just, good. You know, just, I like that. Just kind of taking down, it easy. Downshifting a little bit. If you were downshifting, yeah. you know, just waiting, you know, taking it easy. First three chapters. Bring the book. We can't emphasize enough that it will help your section leaders yeah, and your section to have the book physically with you because that way it's easier to talk about. So we want to do that. We're talking about resurrection. Here, here's a question for you, Dr. Campbell. Yes. Why doesn't the, uh, you know, when Jesus rises from the dead, is this something that an average Jewish person living in the first century AD would have expected? I mean, they have their own scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, right. roughly in place at that point, if not in place. You don't see a lot of resurrection in the Old Testament. Do you see resurrection happen in the Old Testament? Does anyone get resurrected? Well, I mean, there are people that come back to life. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what people, certainly I don't think it was normative, right? Yeah. There are a couple of uh, boys who die who come back to life, but it's, it's definitely like not something that I think people expected. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I mean, you're, you're the Old Testament scholar. Um, what, what do you see in terms of resurrection in the Old Testament? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I do think of those examples. These are very, you know, sort of obscure examples in prophetic stories in the books of Kings. Anyone ever read the books of Kings in the Bible? It's not exactly popular reading material. Here's a hand. I love it. Um, but yeah, you do get a couple of people who are raised from the dead after dying prematurely by a prophet like Elijah or Elisha. So there is that. You also get some cryptic kinds of references to coming back to life in books like Hosea and Isaiah. It is cryptic, though. It's not like this fully spelled out thing. Um, and you do get a reference to something like a resurrection at the end of the book of Daniel. Anyone ever read the book of Daniel? So this is another Old Testament book. Maybe more hands on Daniel, a slightly more popular book than Kings. So there are some places, but you can actually see why there were actually groups of Jews that lived in Jesus' time who just didn't believe that there even was such a thing as life after death. Sometimes this group is referred to as the Sadducees in the New Testament, famously. And their Bible, or their canon, their collection of scripture, was probably just the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they didn't see references to resurrection in those books. Therefore, you can look to them and say, it's not there. Whereas other groups like the, the so-called Pharisees maybe used an expanded set of Bible, what they considered to be Bible, and so they had more opportunities. Um, and certainly like Jesus in the book of Mark, when he's asked about resurrection, he's like, oh yeah, you can see resurrection even in the burning bush story in Exodus chapter 3. And he has a kind of a creative way of interpreting the passage where he sees resurrection in there, but it's not just right there on the surface. So certainly by the time we get to the New, the New Testament, Jews were divided on this question of resurrection, I think. Yeah, and I think for me it helps to make sense of uh, when we read the resurrection accounts in the Gospels of the reaction of the disciples. You know, like when Jesus was crucified and buried, they were super bummed out. You know, yeah. they weren't just like looking at their watches like, okay, third day, like, and yeah. we're going to see him again. Right. And even sort of the disbelief of Peter and some of the, uh, the apostles when uh, Mary and the women came back and said, like, we think he's, like, he's alive again. They were right. like, what? You're crazy. The, right. Your grief has overtaken you. It's stunning then. It's stunning now. It's a strange twist in the story, and we're going to be talking about it for a couple of weeks here, so we're excited for that. Um, our speaker this morning is Dr. Nijay Gupta. Dr. Nijay Gupta, yeah, yeah, yeah. Clap for Nijay. You will remember that last time Dr. Gupta lectured, he was wearing a new hat. I can proudly report to you happily that he is wearing the hat again. Yes. Today. The hat is on, okay? Dr. Gupta is a New Testament scholar. He's a professor at Portland Seminary. There's a graduate school, a seminary at attached to George Fox University. Dr. Gupta is a professor there. He's the author of numerous books, a really deep and sensitive thinker about the New Testament, and a particularly good speaker for us to have on this topic. How about we say the creed together and bring him out here for this, okay? Let's do it. I believe, I believe in God, God the, the Father, Father Almighty, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Would you join us in welcoming Dr. Gupta to the stage? Good morning. How many of you have a poster in your dorm or apartment on your wall? Poster of some kind. Maybe they're not as popular as they used to be. Um, when I was in high school, I had a lot of posters uh, on my wall, mostly bands. But I had one movie poster 
It's, it's my, still my favorite movie. It's called The Shawshank Redemption. How many of you have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? It's a, it's a great film, great drama. And as I was thinking about the topic of resurrection, my mind went back to that beloved movie. It came out when I was in high school. It came out in 1994. It's about the lives and relationships of a group of men in prison in the 1940s. The movie was magnificently narrated by the one and only Morgan Freeman. And one of my favorite scenes involves a reflection on life in prison for these men. While every inmate talked about and dreamed about the freedom of life on the outside, many of them also knew people didn't actually fare too well once they received their parole. There was one character named Brooks who had been in prison his whole life, and he was now an elderly man. And even though every inmate regularly went in for a parole meeting and hoped to get parole, Brooks was actually terrified of leaving the prison and did everything he could to stay in prison. The narrator, Morgan Freeman's character, who's called Red, says this, These walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Have we been institutionalized, conditioned, brainwashed, conformed, like those inmates not wanting to leave prison? Have we become too comfortable, not with prison walls, but perhaps with death. Is death an inevitability or is it an enemy? That's what the Apostles' Creed and the Bible and Christian faith asks us to ponder. According to Christian faith, Jesus' resurrection is God's victory over death. When Jesus rose from the dead, this was a new kind of life, true life, life beyond the threat of death. Jesus' resurrection was no Houdini-like reappearing act. It was the dawn of a new era. Slavery to death, institutionalized death, is no longer just the way things are. You see, Jews viewed death not as just dying, but the power behind all weakness, decay, fragility, and sickness in the world. It's a foreign tyrant, and Christians believe that Jesus came to subdue it. Death be not proud. We spend so much time telling other people, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, good, but that's only the beginning of the good news. At best, chapter 2. The climax of the Bible story is actually the resurrection. We could also say it's the climax of the Apostles' Creed. I want to give you four reasons why the bodily third-day resurrection of Jesus is so important to what Christians believe and how they live. Dr. Doak told me to write on the board, so I'm writing on the board. Number one, 
Jesus' resurrection changed history. I'm just writing history as a key word. Jesus' resurrection changed history. In the international calendar, we tell time by the birth of Jesus, B.C. A.D. A.D. refers to the year of our Lord, presumably Jesus' birth. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born, but approximately what we call one. But for good Christian theology, we might better put the hinge point of history at Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection changed all history. It's symbolic of new birth and new life in the world. God made the impossible possible by defeating death. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the old is gone, all things have been made new. You might be wondering though, many people have wondered over the years, did it really happen though? Did Jesus' resurrection really happen? You might even come up with some reasons to doubt Jesus' resurrection. You might say, number one, no one witnessed it. The tomb was empty. There were no actual witnesses of the resurrection. We have New Testament witnesses of Jesus' appearances, but no one actually saw him exit the tomb. We just have an empty tomb. So that's one reason why someone may doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. A second reason, which is often spread around in kind of philosophical circles, is the idea that miracles like that just can't happen. Because miracles like that can't happen, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. A third reason that's commonly stated why Jesus didn't rise from the dead is the idea that it's a symbol. Jesus' resurrection is a symbol of new life. So, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Well, I want to tell you, you actually can't scientifically prove the resurrection because it's an unrepeatable event. In the same way, you can't prove by scientific fact really any major event in, the, in history, any social event in history, except by trustworthy testimony. Virtually everything we know about events that involve people in the ancient world, we know based on testimony. We have little fragments of things here and there in material record, but by and large we have to ask the question, are the literary sources reliable? Here is a quick rundown of reasons why I believe Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead. Number one. So this is getting into my area of expertise, so I'm, I'm happy to be able to share things that I've learned about this. The Gospels are written in a genre that would have been familiar to ancient people, a genre known as biography. Okay? Now, biographies then are a little bit different than they are now, but ancient biographies had the intention of communicating events that happened in history. The Gospels are written in that genre. Take, for example, the Gospel of Luke. If you read the very beginning of Luke, Luke is insistent. He worked very hard to check with eyewitnesses, double and triple check his facts, so that he could convey information that would be reliable. 
Put another way, the Gospels resonate more with Herodotus, Thucydides, and Tacitus, ancient historians, than with Homer and Virgil, writers of divine legends. So number one, from that kind of subset on reasons why I believe in the resurrection, is the way the Gospels are written. They're written to convey events that have been reported on from eyewitness. Secondly, and this was kind of hat-tipped by uh, our MCs, the resurrection would be a strange thing to make up. The resurrection of Jesus, or the Messiah, would be a very strange thing to make up. Jews, at the time of Jesus, they may have been expecting a Messiah figure. There's some evidence for that. But they were not expecting that person to come back from the dead. There's no clear clues that tell us that they were, you know, in fact, the disciples are kind of dumb about this. They could not understand what Jesus was talking about when he talked about his own resurrection. So, this is not really something that they would have naturally made up later on if it didn't actually happen. There's an interesting story in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul is traveling around telling people about Jesus, and he's proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. The Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. And some Greek philosophers, not only do they not understand what he's talking about, they actually think anastasis is the name of a god. So they think he's talking about two gods, Jesus and the resurrection, like Hootie and the blowfish. Okay, you probably don't understand that reference, but you can look that one up. Resurrection wouldn't have been a simple, easy thing for them to make up. They wouldn't have come up with that because Jews, if they were expecting a resurrection, they're expecting a corporate or group resurrection of the people of Israel, not an individual re resurrection of a Messiah. So it would be strange. Third, if I were fabricating the resurrection, if I were Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, and I was making this thing up, why an empty tomb? If I had creative rights to make up a resurrection, I would have like this super glorified Jesus busting out of the tomb with some kind of glory TNT. I wouldn't just have an empty tomb. You would want to make it ostentatious. When historians, especially Christian historians, talk about why they believe that the resurrection actually happened, if you're trying to talk about it in a more... Uh, uh, historiographical way, they actually look not at the resurrection, but the effects on the growth of early Christianity. So let's say you have this Messiah figure, Jesus, die, which pretty much all historians, Christian or not, agree on. Then you have the growth of Christianity from this very, very small, weird cult, right, a small group of people, into this kind of viral religious movement, how do you get from these confused, terrified disciples to this massive movement that continues to grow into the second century, third century, and so on? How do you do that unless something changed their mind? What could have changed their mind about this new faith or new religious way except something amazing like the resurrection of Jesus? So, Jesus' resurrection changed history, the beginning of a new era. A second 
point we can make about why this is in the creed is that Jesus' resurrection demonstrates the defeat, he told me to write in caps, defeat of death. Defeat of death. We tend to view death primarily from a biological perspective. Cells die. A heart stops. The lungs do not get enough air. Life ceases. But the Bible views death as a tyrant, a monster that eats away at all things until it finally swallows them whole. Look at Psalm 49, which talks about the common state of mortals in a sin-tainted world. I'm quoting from Psalm 49, verse 14. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. Their forms will decay in the grave far from their princely mansions. The phrase from that that really struck me is death will be their shepherd. Shepherd is often an imagery was often an image in the ancient world of a ruler, someone with power and authority. And the Bible portrays death as a foreign enemy in our midst. Jesus came to destroy it. Not just the ceasing of a heartbeat or emptiness of lungs, but the influence of death that wears away at all things and holds back life. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That was a period of time in ancient history when God did not have a covenant established with Israel in, in the way he did with Moses and hadn't yet sent Jesus, so death kind of rules over the world. What we learn from the gospel is, though, that Jesus' resurrection overrules the authority of death. Jesus didn't just return from the dead. He robbed death of its power. Jesus created antibodies to the poison of death. I'm going to tell you uh, something I think is pretty clever that you can share with your friends and pastor and they'll be really impressed. We talk about Jesus rising from the dead. And I used to think that meant that Jesus rose from his own death. Now that's obviously true, but when the Bible talks about Jesus rising from the dead, the word dead in Greek is plural. Let that sink in. When I teach this to my Greek students, because the New Testament was written in Greek, the Greek word for dead is nekroi. Nekroi. And I tell them, instead of translating it the dead, a more formal or literal translation would be the corpses. Jesus rose from the corpses, the realm of the dead. And Colossians refers to Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead, or the corpses. Jesus didn't just say, hey, I'm alive again, look. He said, I've defeated death. I'm the pioneer, the first one to come back from the realm of the dead. And now we'll do it over and over and over and over again. We will not be victims of death. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we will rise again too. Death 
be not proud. Third point. In Jesus' resurrection, Jesus redeems the human body. So I'm just going to write body on here. In Jesus' resurrection, he redeems the human body. I learned a new term last week. The term is excarnation. Okay, think of the word incarnation if you're trying to spell it. And instead of in, just put X, E-X. Excarnation. It actually comes from a philosopher named Charles Taylor. And it refers to the capacity for 21st century people, like you and me, to live a disembodied existence through our digital devices. Incarnation means coming into the flesh. It's talking about God becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ. Excarnation is a philosophical, sociological way of talking about our ability to become disembodied and spend all of our time in the cloud. And Taylor talks about the dangers of excarnation. I think of the book that I read with my son, Ready Player One. And in that, in that dystopian future, which doesn't seem that unrealistic, everybody, you know, the world is pretty much junk, and everybody lives in their devices in an actual second world, a virtual world. They do all their work, all their, all their school, and that would be the climax of excarnation. Our bodies really don't matter. So the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus and his body actually challenges us to care more about our embodiedness. More than any other generation, we are in danger of an excarnational existence. When Jesus woke from the grave, he did not shed his human body. He did not appear as an angel or a glorified phantasm. He rose as God-man, divinity still in bodily form, incarnate 2.0. In the Gospel of John, the resurrected Jesus cooks fish and eats it with Peter. In the Gospel of Luke, the resurrected Jesus breaks bread and shares it with his friends. It could be different. Jesus could have risen as a ghost or a phantasm or an angel. There was a famous story at the time of Jesus, a Jewish story called Tobit. It's one of my favorite stories from the ancient world. And I can't tell you the ins and outs, but it's really clever. But it involves a young man named Tobias going on a journey to collect some money, and an angel in disguise accompanies him and helps him out. Now at the end of the story, the angel reveals himself as an angel. And what I think is really funny is in this story, the angel has to explain why it looks like he was eating and drinking. And in the story, the angel actually says, oh, you know all that eating and drinking? That was all fake. I didn't do any of that. But what I find important and interesting is Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't take it all back and say, oh, this body stuff is just nonsense or it's below me. As the resurrected Jesus, the Gospels make it very clear he continued to have a human form even though that human form was glorified. Put another way, in his resurrection body, he was still human. More than human, but not less than human. 
Think about that. In his resurrection body, he was still human. More than human, but not less than human. To Thomas, he showed his physical scars, proving that this was the same Jesus as before. In fact, I believe Jesus even now still has crucifixion scars on his body. But they are not stains of shame, but marks from a battle that he won. Death, be not proud. Last point. In his resurrection, Jesus reigns, so I'm writing reigns, as Lord. In his resurrection, Jesus reigns as Lord. So the creed not only affirms that he rose from the dead and that he ascended into heaven, but he's seated at the right hand, which is in a place of power. Jesus didn't just die for sins. He lives for your transformation. This is a part of the gospel that I don't feel like I was really taught when I was young. I was taught, hey, here's this Jesus thing, say the prayer, become a Christian, and you're all set. But that's just the beginning. The actual power of the gospel and the power of salvation is the lordship of Jesus to rule and reign graciously but powerfully in our lives today and tomorrow and forever. He rules the world from on high, and he lives to intercede for us as our high priest. I already taught you something clever from Greek, but I'll teach you one more thing. At Easter time, I kind of wish it was Easter time because it'd be a great time to give a, a message like this, but what's the common refrain that you give at Easter time? So I'm going to push on you here that, that grew up going to church. What do you say at Easter time? He is risen, right? He is risen indeed. Now, I always found that terminology kind of strange because we don't use the past tense language like risen with the verb is. So, for example, if my wife said, have the guest arrived, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, he is arrived or she is arrived. I'll say they arrived or they have arrived. So why would you combine the is with the en with he is risen? Why wouldn't it be he rose or he has risen? There's actually a very important reason for it. The English text, when it says Christ is risen or, or he is risen, is reflecting a Greek verbal tense called the perfect tense. Now, I'm not going to give you a big Greek lesson, but the basic idea is this. The perfect tense represents a past action, something that happened in the past, that sets up a new state of being or an ongoing consequence. So, let's say Dr. Doak is hungry. No, let's say he's not hungry, but I say, do you want this cookie? And he says, I have eaten. Okay? He hasn't actually answered the question if I just want a yes or no question, but the answer is implicit in what he says. If I say, do you want this cookie? He says, I have eaten. That means I ate in the past, and I have, there's an ongoing consequence of me being full. Okay? Past action ongoing result or consequence. Okay? Following me so far? So let's take that with the resurrection. He is risen. He rose from the dead then, 
and he exists in an ongoing state of being a new life and reigns as Lord. He, we could say he has risen, but to say he is risen represents the fact that that past action of rising from the dead, defeating death, sets him up in a new position to be death-resistant. He is risen. It's a powerful phrase because it's not just about the past. It's about what's ha- what has happened in the past changes everything going forward. Jesus is risen, and therefore he is Lord of a new reality where we are no longer enslaved to death. What that means is that Jesus' death is not a get-out-of-jail-free card to carry around in your pocket. It is adoption into a whole new humanity led by the victorious one. You can't say, I'm a non-practicing Christian. That's not a category for Jesus, because those who have been welcomed into his new resurrection life are called to live in him, to practice life in him. They're the ones who are rescued from the power of death. Death, be not proud. Why do I keep repeating death, be not proud? This is actually from a poem, a sonnet by Christian writer John Donne, D-O-N-N-E, 17th century Christian poet. And he wrote a powerful representation of what Jesus' resurrection means for a world that has been ripped apart by death, but lives in hope that, as we heard last week, love and resurrection is stronger than death. I'm going to read this poem. You're going to have to bear with me because it uses Old English. And I'm going to try to pause in the right places and take it slow. But later on, I want you to look up this poem and read it. Spend some time reflecting on it. Sometimes we do things in college that we feel like not very relevant to real life. But when I read this poem and I think about the resurrection of Jesus, there's nothing more real than facing our mortality. There's nothing more real than facing sickness, death, and disintegration in the world. And to me, then, there's nothing more powerful than giving ourselves and our neighbors and our colleagues and our friends hope. So I want you to hear this poem and maybe look at it again later. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure, then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppier charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? 
One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Little could I know that very recently America would lose a hero in Kobe Bryant and his young daughter who died in a helicopter crash not long ago, along with several other people. And as I engaged on social media and looked around, there was global grief. Not only for an NBA hero, but also the wickedness that plagues our world where a young person can die like that. Such deep grief across the whole world, and it can be multiplied by every death that happens. And in our hearts, and maybe in our words, we say, this should not be. And I think that is the divine image in us, reminding us of the dangers of becoming institutionalized to death. I want you to take some time and think about the things in this world that are corrupted by sin and touched by the power of death. Think about the people in your life who are harmed by sickness, cancer, weakness, dementia, blindness, abuse. So in every part of me, I want to scream out, death be not proud. Christ is risen. I want to do a little exercise. This is kind of spur of the moment, but I feel like on this particular day, we need it. I need about 20 volunteers. Just start coming up. Highways and by, maybe on the end so you can get back to your seat somehow, but come up, highways and by. Let's have about 10 people down here and 10 people up here. We got a couple of minutes for this. We, got, we need about 10 people up here. We need about 10 people down there. All right. Let's get some more. Be brave. All right. Down here. I need 10 people down here. Right here. All right. Keep coming. Keep them coming. All right. Now, if, I'm going to tell you what to do, and if you don't want to do it, you're, it's okay to sit down because it's going to be a little awkward. So I want these 10 to face me. Stand there and face me. Get further back because you're too close. Okay. You guys can join in too, but I didn't want to make it too awkward. This is going to be awkward for them. You're going to have to scream as loud as you can. So if you don't want to scream, you should sit down. So you guys are going to scream, death be not proud, and you guys are going to scream, Christ is risen. 
And we're going to do it three times, and I want you to do it as loud as you possibly can. Okay, you can sit down if you want. I don't want to, you know, make anyone feel too awkward here. But this is awkward, right? You might want to turn my mic down, too. All right, so I'm going to see Death Be Not Proud. Let's say he is risen. Death Be Not Proud, he is risen. Death Be Not Proud, he is risen. Then we'll be done, okay? That's it, as loud as you can. All right? I'm trusting you. Death Be Not Proud, you got it? seated. Thank you.